0: Hey, we're back. This is Joe and TJ from the Schoolhouse 302, and you're listening to our Focus Ed podcast. Focus Ed is your educational leadership podcast. In every episode, it's our mission to focus on one aspect of teaching and leading in school so that you can make progress in your district, school, or classroom with even more knowledge Better understanding and a clear
1: direction on what to do next for your students and staff. In each show, we ask an expert guest to join us and we dissect their work and tons of other information about leading better and growing faster in schools. We're only doing 14 episodes per school year and we hope you'll listen to all 14. The guest list is incredible. Don't miss a single show and do us a favor please like, share, and follow. Focus Ed on SoundCloud, iTunes, and our website, theschoolhouse302.com. And now for another episode of Focus Ed.
0: Each episode of Focus Ed, we invite expert guests to join us. And this episode, we have Jeffrey Benson. Jeffrey, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Our focus this month is on improving every lesson plan and embedding that with social and emotional learning. And so we, didn't, we could not think of anyone better than Jeffrey um, to have on our show. TJ, why don't you tell our audience a bit more about Jeffrey?
1: Thank you for that, Joe. Jeffrey Benson has worked in almost every school context with over 40 years of experience in the field of education. He's been a teacher in elementary schools, middle schools, and high schools, as an instructor in undergraduate and graduate programs. He's also been an administrator in day and residential schools. He has studied and worked side by side with national leaders in the fields of special education, learning theory, trauma and addiction, school reform, advisory programs, math curriculum, adult development, and conflict resolution. His books include improve every lesson plan with SEL, which we're gonna talk about today, hanging in strategies for working with the students who challenge us most and 10 steps for managing change in schools. The core of Jeffrey's work is in understanding how people learn the starting point for everything that schools should do. All right, Jeffrey, we're gonna jump right in. As we said, you wrote a book called improve every lesson plan with SEL. We'll plug that and say that folks on uh, our live audience might win a, a copy of that today. We wanna to start in this, in this one spot here where you've identified three broad categories for the skills that students need. You call them skills for self, interpersonal skills, and skills as a community member. Tell us more about these skills and how to embed them into lesson plans.
2: Sure, and thanks for having me on the show. I think, unfortunately, in a lot of situations, people think of social emotional learning as kids being polite and compliant. And it's so much more than that. It's about kids having a sense of self, of having goals, of knowing how to access support, of obviously knowing how to get along with their peers. But I also wanna point out a big part. It's also about having a commitment to making improvements in their communities, in their families, because, Learning in schools is a social activity, and it needs to be able to be seen in the context of the real lives kids lead. And so part of connecting to kids' social and emotional skills and goals is also to deepen their commitment to learning. So it's not just because it's on the test, but it's much more because this matters to me. And the difference, as we know, in our own learning, as well as for kids, the difference in one's perseverance and one's effort to do mastery is so different when one's driven from internal drives, needs, commitments, versus I'm being doing this to be compliant, to get a grade. That has been a failure for so many kids for so long to ask them to just be compliant. So those skills embed a lot of how do I seek my own solace? How do I seek my own goals? How do I mesh those goals with my peers? And ultimately, how will I be of use to my community when I get out of school? John Dewey said 100 years ago, in a democracy, underlying goal for everything is how do you participate as a member of democracy? How do we teach kids to do that? Those are are skills that encompass all three of those areas.
0: Jeffrey, we couldn't agree more with the intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation um, we often, TJ and I talk about you know what at what grade level do students start to recognize um, or start behaving more in a compliance matter? We've kind of landed on somewhere around the third grade, maybe even earlier than that, but that's definite time where they start to recognize some of their shortcomings while learning and then like a, a grade matters more so than maybe something else. What are some very practical, you know, suggestions and strategies that we can really across the, the P-20 system, I would broaden it, you know, throughout to start developing that intrinsic motivation or recapturing it after it's gone. And, you know, I'm in a high school only district and it's difficult. I'll say if, if that intrinsic motivation is left, it's very difficult to reclaim.
2: And that's uh- everyone has an obligation to build that capacity in kids from pre-K up through 12th grade. Um, so I'm going to talk about two particular traditional things that happen in classes, and this is embedded in, in the book in various ways. One is giving think time. Every kid, every question in every class, one should stop and say, everyone, 10 seconds, 15 seconds, every, every brain in this class belongs. I want everyone to think about this. So a typical thing is A teacher says, okay, who can tell me what we did? And before I finish the sentence as a teacher, there are five kids with their hands up already in class who have the auditory language ability, the processing speed, probably the cultural and personal connections to me that they're willing to, before I even finish the question, have their hands up because they can hear where the sentence is going, which is who can tell me what we did in class yesterday. They don't even wait. They have their hands up. And this happens from kindergarten, pre-K, The kids who process language quickly and who feel an affinity to the teacher and feel safe have their hands up. And from early on, let's say Joe's the one who answers that question. Joe must be the smart one, right? Because he has his hands up right away. It happens a thousand times a year. So way before third grade, I've already sussed out that I'm not the smart one. And so I start hiding. I start hitchhiking. I start waiting for Joe to do the work for me. So think time is really important because I have to believe that every kid has something to say. So here's a way to to do that particular one. Class, I want everyone to stop. 10 seconds of quiet think time. Think of one memory that happened during class yesterday. All of you are here. There is not a right answer. There's just the only right answer is what you're thinking. And then we go around and collect some memories. So one kid might say, Mr. B, I remember when the the marker slipped out of your hand when you were writing. I said, oh, me too. I remember that. Somebody else might say, hey, I remember when Jose had that great answer about the number two. I'm like, me too, I remember that. Somebody else might say, I remember when the pigeon landed on the windowsill. Me too. But what we're doing is collectively rebuilding that classroom and saying, Mm. everyone's memories matter in this classroom. If we only immediately pick those first five kids, we reinforce something really horrible, which is this notion that speed equals intelligence and quickness equals wisdom. We must undo that. The other point to that one is, and this is a tough one, 90% of the questions we ask kids in school is guess what the teacher's thinking. Not what are you thinking? What interesting stuff does your brain think about at this point? What diverse and wonderful ideas are you having now? But more, can you guess what I'm thinking? And we're doing it with no think time. So what we're doing is reducing the cognitive involvement of 85% of the kids right off the bat. And we reinforce this notion that I guess the other kids are the smart ones who have their hands up right away. Whereas you give think time and opportunities for kids to explore their own thinking. I've heard some amazing things from kids who otherwise don't, can't guess what Mr. B is thinking, but have some really nice ideas. It connects me to them. I can express my joy, which is genuine in their wildly diverse ideas. And they realize that what they have to say matters and is a contribution to the intellectual discourse of this class. So think time for every question and trying to figure out how to not make it be, guess what the teacher's thinking. Because that also so overloads in terms of cultural references and values to be able to think what my teacher's thinking. I have to have a lot of alignment with my teacher to guess that. So those are my two favorites. And I think if we did that early on and all the time, We'd find that a lot more kids would feel safe saying what they're thinking, saying they're interesting, fabulous, and even their partial ideas. So you don't have to have the whole idea, but can you even remember one moment from this? One notion, one idea that happened. Thank you so much for adding to this class's understanding. And that comes back to a social emotional skill, which is how do you contribute to your community? How do you listen to divergent ideas? How do you appreciate your strengths? How do you articulate your own beliefs, that's the safe space, the safe and brave space that teachers can make in classrooms pre-K through 12, 12th grade.
1: So much to take away from that, Jeffrey. I do wanna say that when you said Joe was the smart one, he passed me a note to said, that's true. (laughs) So I'm dealing with that over here. Think time, ask simple questions about memories. I love that. Speed does not equal intelligence. I wrote that down. The guess what I'm thinking questions gotta go. That's just great uh, nugget of support for the people who are listening here. Can you connect that to how students learn and retain information? You you have it in your bio that you studied that. I'm sure you you're well-versed in the neuroscience, but they also have to know the content, right? And so how do you connect that, what you just said to how they learn and bridging that to the curriculum stuff?
2: We build what we know on what we've previously learned. So if I came in and started speaking Spanish to you all, and probably a few of you out there are fluent in Spanish, you wouldn't understand anything. So I have to start with where you're at and build up from that. Um, This is so critical. So what people do is they connect what they previously know to new information, but there's a really interesting part from brain science, which is the brain is an organ that works at a need-to-know level. So why do I need to know this? Why do I need to focus? What is it in this for me that I can connect to that's going to make me have some cognitive, intellectual, social connection to this new information? And as a teacher, how do I make that space so kids can construct their own knowledge. Because if the only thing is, can you guess what the teacher's thinking? Well, either I get it or I don't. But if I can involve kids in being open to the process of their learning, what does this make you think about? What does this remind you of? What do you previously know about this? For older students, what purpose can you see? And there's that question can be for younger students in various ways. How can this connect to your goals in life? Um, One of my favorite questions, and this is a lot in the book, which is what difference would it make in your family, your community, or this world if everyone understood what we're trying to understand now? How would that matter? So I want to come back to, we work from what we previously know. We learn more from making errors and correcting them than from repeating what we already know. After a while, the brain does very little work to just go back over the information you already know but having a space in which you can say, I'm thinking this, this is my idea, this is what I'm thinking about, allows you to explore all the possibilities. There's not one, there's not one synapse in your brain that remembers the year George Washington was born. It's interwoven with all sorts of information. So what we have to get kids to do is say, what do I know about the early 1700s? What do I know about George Washington? What do I know about when the Constitution was written or the Declaration of Independence? How does all that help me hold that information? So we learn things that get interwoven in sort of a tapestry of previous held information. What's really important is that each kid finds a way to hook that to what they previously knew. This is why it's so important to make safe and brave spaces in classrooms so kids can feel safe saying, here's my thought, here's the connection I'm making, I'm thinking this, does that make any sense? This is the other part that we have to work so hard against is that not only is are 90% of the questions, guess what the teacher's thinking, but it's in a social setting in which we're assessed constantly, 100% of the time. And so we have to create spaces in which not every answer is an assessment. Yes, no, right, wrong in front of 30 peers. That's going to shut kids down. So what we want is to take all the impediments away from them, forging their own connections and airing out those connections. So a lot of what you know, teaching ultimately is, You know Einstein said, I don't teach my students. I provide the conditions in which they learn. I present stimulation to the class, a new math problem, a paragraph in a book, a definition, a science experiment. And what I want to know is what's happening in all your wonderful, beautiful brains at this point. What are you thinking now from that stimulation? Oh, you're thinking that now I can think about what's the next thing to give you. Oh, and you went down that Avenue. What a fascinating idea. I had never even thought of that connection. Wow. That helps me. So I have to create that space in which kids can expose their thinking without fear that it's only going to be evaluated. So we do that minute by minute in classrooms. So I want to go back to, you know, Joseph and what happens when I get them in 12th grade. I make a rock hard commitment that this is going to be a safe space to air out your ideas. I'm going to do that over and over again. This may not have happened to you before in life. I may be the first teacher who is fascinated by your wonderful ideas. Yay, that's what this space is about. From that, which is why for me, formal assessment, and I put a big part in the book about this, For me is, I think about almost every teacher I know who wanted to become a teacher, wanted to be in dialogue with kids about what they were thinking about the content, about the stuff. So how do we create that space in which they are in dialogue with us versus worried that they're gonna give the right or wrong answer? And that's what we're gonna do from every moment, from the second they walk in the classroom to that last moment they're out of there is, I honor your thinking, I love your brains. I love what you do with this stuff. I'm gonna keep taking you down this road to understanding this content. But all along the way, what each of you is constructing is going to help all of us understand this at a really deep level. And we have to create that space. So another thing around that is I don't have to, as the teacher hear everything kids say. I'm a big believer in turn and learns. So if every kid in the class has a memory from class yesterday, I might say, turn to your partner. Each of you share what you've thought of from yesterday because I want them to be simulating each other. Plus that's a fabulous social emotional skill, right? How to articulate your thoughts, how to listen to someone else's ideas. And I might say after that, instead of telling me what you said, could two or three students share what your partner said? Great skill, summarizing someone else's thinking as well as honoring someone else's thinking as well as adding to the stew in this class of how we're understanding something. Do I have to go around and hear what every kid said? No, I'm gonna come around. I'm gonna pick up those pieces as we go. But I want them to feel like their ability to articulate their thinking is the most important activity that happens in this class.
0: That's a long answer. (laughs) No, no, (laughs) no, but it's very rich. And I wanna dig into something here TJ and I often say that this podcast, we try to make it real conversations with real educators facing real problems. And you started to dive down into that assessment hole. So I I do want to get in this muddy water for a little bit. Is it possible, we're still in an accountability rich environment, you know, that, you know, the assessments high stakes environment has not gone, despite ESSA bringing some SEL into the picture. But something that struck me, and I'm, I'm going to ask you whether or not you think I'm right about this, do you believe giving this like the safe and grace spaces, the safe and brave spaces, do you think that actually allows teachers to move through the curriculum faster? And I ask that because there's so oftentimes dissonance between like curriculum maps and we have to get to the standards and then like formative assessments that may slow it up if you realize students aren't on the same page as you as the instructor. Or if we continue to open up dialogue, how do we move through the curriculum? But something that dawned on me and I could be way off was if the kids are that engaged, they're that connected because the teacher's connecting with them we won't have that dissonance and that won't be an impediment to moving through the curriculum there's a level of engagement involvement that helps with that pace but i could be way off thoughts on that
2: it's a conundrum we face i'm going to say one of the original sins of mass education is the belief that every kid who is 8 years old on march 4th should be on page 17 of the math workbook and so we all struggle within that and sometimes what i think about so whose kid gets today's lesson plan this notion of we're going to get through the lesson plan almost by definition means we're leaving kids behind so getting through it does not ensure mastery in any fashion as we know that i'm not happy that kids leave my classroom and get a c plus on a test and i can check off and say they passed it makes me really depressed i think it's, you know, the hardest thing being a teacher is knowing on a given day that a kid left my classroom, not feeling smarter, finished a unit, not feeling competent, because there's this sort of impediment to, you know, this push to push, pull. So I think it's up to teachers at some point to protect their students. Yeah. I know this is this is for me an ethical, political issue. I think it's up for administrators to start protecting the students as well. And to say this endless cascade of curriculum is counterproductive to the health of a lot of kids. And ultimately, yeah, those discussions in which everyone's engaged, in which they're making connections, they're gonna do all that stuff, is gonna create a bedrock from which they will do better going forward. Does that mean I'm gonna get to every single iota of the curriculum then? Maybe not. Can I, if I'm an administrator, can I support a teacher who says to me, Jeffrey, it was an incredible discussion today. So I'm gonna think about what will I do less of coming forward. Is it okay if all my kids don't get 100% on the MCAS because we didn't cover this, but 90% of them have been completely enriched in this other part of it that will help them be good students forward? That's the conversations we need to be having. You administrators out there, how do we support teachers to make those decisions so they're teaching the real kids in their classroom? Otherwise, you know, this is a tough one. So it's not an easy answer. I'm, I'm putting a lot of pieces out there. I never expected teachers in my school to be able to tell me on Monday what they were teaching on Friday. Because what is it? They're just cardboard cutouts in your class. You just going to ignore completely the human beings and just, it's like, I want you to be able to, by Wednesday, have a sense of where you're going to be on Friday. And I want you to be on this arc forward. But I love when teachers would come to me and say, is it okay for me to slow down at this point? Because they're not going to, as a group, fully succeed if I don't do enrichment at this point. That's great stuff. That's what we want teachers to be able to say to us, and not shut the teachers down, which is what we've done, and make them hide because they're not railroading down the curriculum. I don't think there's a great answer to that, but I think each of us has to have the collective support of each other and moral courage to start questioning. You know, the the issue is, and this is not my line; it's an old line, and you know, this is an old educator speaking here. The goal is not to cover the curriculum but to uncover the curriculum. And how do we allow teachers to do that? How do we allow students to do that? Because in part, and this is a part among many things about being an anti-racist educator is otherwise it implicitly favorites kids from the dominant culture because of all the cultural references and embedded assumptions in the curriculum. And if we don't allow kids to uncover it, what we're really doing is leaning into the privilege that certain kids bring to school. And that will not be helped by railroading through the curriculum. We will just be replicating inequality. How do we fight that? Well, we have to fight it in many ways. I wish I had the magic wand. Only I'm hoping all of us look to each other and say, how can I do it in my school? How can I do it in my grade? How can we protect? I'm going to say this. I mean this, Marl. How can we protect the majority of the kids from the stress the adults are laying on each other to get through the curriculum.
1: It's powerful what you're saying here. A lot of wisdom, Jeffrey. And I think people are going to take a lot away from that. And and it's true. We do have to fight against this notion that we're going to push through all of these standards and that every kid's going to understand all of that and get back to teaching the whole child. And that's why we contacted
2: you in in the first place, because we know that, that you believe in that. Let me just jump in and say one more thing for the kid who's not fully ready for any of a number of reasons on March 14th beyond page 30 of the workbook. If the kid isn't, well, then the kid must not be smart and the kid internalizes that. The teacher must not be a good teacher. The family must be deficient. The, you know, the administration must not be pushing them hard enough when really there's just a disconnect between child development and the curriculum. And we have to reframe it that it's not that the kid is incompetent. And that's the person in all of this I want to protect the most. The kid from believing that I must be stupid because once you get, you know, we know that the opposite of a a growth mindset is a fixed mindset. I only have this much intelligence that I get to work with in school. And what I'm going to do is hide out to prevent being seen as being stupid in class. And there's a huge number of kids who just want to get through school, not being exposed as being stupid. And that goes back to the 90% of the questions being guessed what the teacher's thinking. It goes back to no think time. We have to make every kid feel valued and worthy because every kid is valuable and worthwhile. And I think a lot of what you're talking about
1: too, in terms of the student experience and the teacher experience is what Joe and I have called a learning culture. And it's a place where the teacher thinks really hard in the PLC and thinks really hard about the lesson plan and thinks really hard about the day and what's happening as it unfolds. So that, while it's unfolding the kids can think really hard about the content yeah. and their experience and themselves. And schools have gotten to, you know, somehow gotten to these this standardized curriculum and have actually gotten away from thinking and so I think it's almost backfired on us in a way. So you've talked about the student experience. I want to ask this question as we kind of pivot into some of your, you know, your um, experiences and theories about schools and about this profession in general so that people can take away some nuggets there as well beyond just our conversation about SEL. If you were going to improve the student experience in every school, what would you want to see done? (laughs)
2: It's such a big question, right? Because there's no one thing to do because we would have figured that out. But I'll give you my snarky answer first. We actually (laughs) have a model of schools that produce kids who become leaders in industry, leaders in their community, who go on to prestigious colleges, who go on to careers in politics, and it's the private school model. And so what do we know? That those are kids who mostly come from privilege already and we're spending $60,000 a year on top of that to educate those kids of privilege so that they can continue to operate at that level. So that's only about five times the amount we spend on public school education for kids who have not had that privilege. So obviously the first thing is to do is to find that huge money. We just ended a war in Afghanistan. It seems to me we could start looking at that military budget and say, let's take that budget and put it to schools because clearly it didn't work there and we are so inequitable in resources. So that's the first thing. Second thing that circles around to is class size. I don't know any adult who would say, I would prefer my kid was in a class of 30 versus a class of 15. And here's, here's uh, one of my other snarky parts. Um, I, and I've had some um, interesting conversations with people who said, it's not class size, Jeffrey. You know, it's the quality of the teacher. It's the teacher matters more. And I would say, well, then why don't we just take the best teacher Put that teacher in the cafeteria with 250 kids save a whole bunch of money and we'll do great because of course that's not true there's a point at which it doesn't work in which you actually have to have some personalization of learning and my guess is we have to get classes down to about 15 16 kids you know the standard like people say wow we, you know we only have 24 kids in our system in each class i'm like well that's better than 30 but we're not where we need to be so class size is really important tremendous more support for teachers in terms of mentors, in terms of PLCs, in terms of working with other teachers and with their supervisors in doing lesson planning so that you're not alone in trying to figure out how do I have each kid leave class feeling competent given the diverse needs of kids in schools? Tremendous amount more support for teachers in terms of lesson planning. I wanna go back to one other thing JT said about how do we do it through a lesson? And this goes back a small plug of the book is what we did is we set up the chapters in the sequence of the book to be, basically took a lesson plan and broke it into eight sections and said in each of those sections, how could you max out kids thinking? How can you max out kids sense of competence? So that if you can't do it in every section, okay, I don't think anyone can. I don't even know if my best, I could have done that, but could at least at four or five junctures in the lesson, could I have caught myself and said, here's one of those moments when I say, okay, everyone, what are you thinking right now? What's important to you and I? I turn to your partner. Older kids, write, at, you know, one, write one paragraph to me. What do you think is really important? Catch four or five moments in each class. That's doable. That is doable. So long answer, again, because it's a big problem. We've gotten ourselves into a cul-de-sac that's not successful in terms of enough kids being successful in school. And we don't even know in some fashion what it would look like if we had schools where all kids felt welcome, where all kids were heard, where all kids were honored, where all learning styles were part of the lesson plan, in which each kid was the one who the lesson plan was written for.
0: For you along that line, those lines of things like PLCs, mentorship, developing teachers, you know, getting them into a space where they even feel that they're comfortable and confident to learn that they're not being judged all the time and they can actually operate in a safe space. Is there a resource or or something or strategies to really support teacher development outside of the mentorship, outside of the PLC, even if it's a physical product that you've just seen something work really well in that development?
2: You know, it's again, is there one thing? No. I think that school systems can set up and how you can use grant money to put teachers in self-regular, you know, self-organized PLCs. So they're doing it because they want to do it with each other and there's money for them to do that. And you know, one of the things we learned doing remote learning was I run seminars for teachers all over the country who'd want to sit and talk to other teachers about how to do this work. There's a lot of desire for teachers to learn to do their work better under these conditions. You know, my the organization ASCD is a really great treasure trove for articles, for books, for PLCs, for learning communities. And I would always say, go to their website and start kicking around and and digging around and seeing what's there because there's so much there. They're a really good resource and a good starting spot. You know, and this goes again, you know, back to some, you know, supporting teachers to self-organize. You don't have, you don't need permission to seek out four or five other teachers in your school system and go out to coffee once a week and to talk to each other and find peers and do your work better and feel better with each other.
1: That's good. And it's something that we can accomplish by, you know, providing that time on professional development days for teachers to self-organize instead of always doing what we do, which is jam another curriculum in front of them like we do with the kids. So yeah. And
2: so let me talk a little bit conceptual piece about that. It's both about kids and teachers. I often talk about in classrooms, there should be places where kids can get up and stand and move while the lesson's going on, like in ballparks. You know, we have standing room only sections. And I've worked in a lot of schools to do that. And what I always often say is to teachers is, oh, I know in your head you're thinking there are five kids who would screw that up completely. And so what we tend to do in schools is stop 20 kids from doing what's developmentally in their proximal development in their growing edge because five kids will mess it up and we have to turn that paradigm on its head. Similarly, with things like PLCs, I know as a principal that there were a small number of teachers who would not use that time well, but I have to actually trust that the great majority of teachers actually would and to support them for doing that and allow them to do that and then to work more closely with the five teachers who will struggle for any of a number of reasons with using that time well. And instead, and this is the evaluation part that has become onerous, is that we don't let people do stuff because we want to make sure that five out of the 20 aren't going to screw up. You know, most teachers, given the support, the time, and their needs are going to do ethical and professionally valid work. And yes, we can ask for feedback about what they're doing, because I think ultimately we have to have some quality control. But I think we have to invest more in this is not my principal hat on. I have to invest more in teachers as my allies and not my subjects if schools are going to function better.
1: Yeah, that's from a practical standpoint, that's great advice for assistant principals and principals who are listening here, which we have a ton who will take a lot away from that. I'm curious, um, we're going to link back to your books and your work, and you mentioned ASCD. I'm curious if there's not one or two authors or leaders in education or even outside of education who you follow, who you would say, if you're not into this person's stuff, you got to go there and, and read it and learn about it?
2: Well, wow, there's um, there's a lot of great people out there doing work. So I'm going to actually take us back a couple generations, which I think, you know, I sometimes I call myself an educational elder at this point. It's sort of our job. I, I would wish we read Carl Rogers more. Carl Rogers' work in terms of Human development and child development is critical to making safe and brave spaces in schools and ultimately how to be in relationship to kids so that they can freely think is really important. I love Zaretta Hammond's book, Culturally Responsive Teaching in the Brain. That's one of my go-to books. It's it's just a great book. Every time I come back to it, I'm like, Yay! thanks, Zaretta, for writing that book. There's the book Brain Rules which is my favorite book to give people who want the non-neuroscience level info about how do brains work and how how can I apply that in the classroom. That's one of my favorite books. There's a book called No Mind Left Behind, which is about executive functioning. Executive functioning is the ghost in the machine for kids' failure, especially in middle school and high school. We need to spend more time in middle school and high school helping kids with their executive functioning. You know, By the time you get to high school, your, your brain isn't. You know, A lot of kids who are 15 and 16 have the executive functioning skills of raccoons. And I say that with great love for those kids. And here they are. OK, Tuesday, I have a chemistry test. Wednesday, I have to have this chapter finished in my book. On Thursday, I am going to try out for the soccer team. So I have to have this permission slip in. I have to have an outline for my social studies thing. What are we asking kids to do? It's an incredible amount of stuff without nearly enough support. And they might have brothers or sister at home they're taking care of, or a job they have to do, or they have to spend a lot of time getting back and forth to school. We need to be supporting kids in their executive functioning, especially once you get out of elementary school where you're kind of in a contained space and kids are much more on their own, which is why I love the book, No Mind Left Behind, because it says, man, it's the executive functioning and it shows up not just... And where do you keep your papers, which actually is, you know, one of the like, yeah, if my kids aren't keeping their papers efficiently done, I know they're struggling, but there are many other ways as well. All right, that was, uh, and then I also love Michael Fulham's work, looking at organizations and Michael has enough of understanding of schools that it's easy to link his understanding about organizations to how schools run. And I think that's really important. One of my mentors said to me, you know, when you look at an organization, don't blame the people who have the least amount of power on the inefficiencies of the system. I think those of us who are administration really have to look at how do we engineer jobs that teachers can do and how do we support them in doing it because we can't be in their classrooms all the time. So we have to really build capacity in them so we can, in some sense, trust them because we can't micromanage them enough. You can't be in every classroom all the time. That was a long answer as usual.
1: No, uh, we love it. And we love the building of the capacity of our workforce. You can't be in the classroom all the time, but it is the most important space. We have to go when we can. I'm thrilled that you recommended Brain Rules. We, we've we we've recommended that on our site um, before for educators to read um, um, among the, the neuroscience books that that can dig into how learning should take place and unfold in the classroom. It's a great place to kind of wrap up. Jeffrey, you've given us a ton of resources and a ton of your wisdom. Thank you so much for being on the show. Is there anything else that you would like to add that you didn't say, a request from the audience or anything for today's listeners?
2: No, um, I'll just mention, however, that the book I'm researching now is I'm looking at how do we use um, institutional and hierarchical power in schools to meet our goals, because mostly power in schools is a corrupting influence on relationships between people in different parts of the hierarchies, between principals, assistant principals, superintendents, teachers. How do we actually be um, and make explicit our different capacities and our different powers in school and know how to leverage each other's work? Um, I think it's something we never talk about, and I want to have us start thinking about naming authority. And also because I do a lot of um, mentoring of new administrators, it's a thing that no one's ever said to them. So what's it like to have power? How do you want to use it? What are you scared of? How can you be explicit about when you are leveraging your authority? How can you step back and say, this is a collaborative situation? And how do we make that work? It's um, in the great book, Reframing Organizations, there's a line which is, that power and authority is a tool to running organizations better. We should know how to leverage it better. So that's what I'm working on. Stay in touch everyone through my website, jeffreybenson.org for all my articles, books. I love being in dialogue with people. I write to people all over the country. I don't mind, it makes me feel good. It feeds me, we have to feed each other. We hang in together. It's really important to create our own communities of learners as adults.
1: Fantastic final words from Jeffrey Benson. You heard it here on Focus Ed. Everyone, a virtual round of applause uh, from our live audience. Don't forget to follow the schoolhouse302.com for podcasts, blog posts, books to read, and more. We'll post this episode when it's out of production. We'll be back soon with another episode of Focus Ed. Until then, stay focused. And now a word from our sponsors. Hey, Joe, you know what leaders need these days? What's that, TJ? Sleep. A good night's rest. Self-care. We've heard it over and over and over again from our guests on the podcast that you can't pour from an empty cup. Leaders need sleep. One of the number one ways you can replenish yourself and lead better is a good night's sleep. I hear you,
0: but you know what? I'm so tired. I don't even like thinking about, you know, getting a good night's sleep. But, you know, do tell. How do we go about getting better sleep?
1: Well, I think that's part of your problem is you need a better bed. It always starts with the bed. That's why we recommend Ghost Bed, our sponsor, with 30,000 plus five-star reviews. Their patented sleep and cooling technology gets you to sleep faster and longer than any other bed.
0: That's right. And their handcrafted mattresses come with a 101 night at home sleep trial and a two times the industry standard warranty. They're absolutely certain that their beds will work for you.
1: And with free shipping within 24 hours of your purchase, it's fantastic support from the company. And guess what? Just for being a listener at the Schoolhouse 302. You get 30% off with the use of our code SH302 at checkout. You go to ghostbed.com. You get some sleep so that you can lead better and grow faster. You use SH302 at checkout.
0: Absolutely. And last thing, even if you don't need a bed, you're thinking, wow, I would love to try out ghost bed, but I just bought a bed. Refer someone else for a bed at ghostbed.com. You'll get a hundred bucks for helping someone else get a good night's rest.
1: Wow. That's 30% off with SH302 code. At ghostbed.com, a hundred bucks for your referral. If you get somebody else a good night's sleep, better sleep for you, better leadership, ghostbed.com. You can't beat it, ghostbed.com.